Welcome to another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. After dozens and dozens and dozens of interviews, you'd think I'd be used to having conversations with such amazingly talented, innovative, creative women. Not so. It is still a humbling experience, and Chandrika Tandon is no exception. Not only is she a Grammy-nominated multi-instrumentalist singer and composer, Chandrika also happens to be a successful businesswoman and philanthropist. Let's begin with the music, which can be traced back to her childhood in Chennai, capital of the Indian state of Tamil Nadu. Chandrika was exposed to traditional Indian classical music, jazz, R&B, and rock and roll. However, her musical career didn't begin until later in her professional life. Chandrika's business career took off after getting her MBA in India when she was just 20. She worked in Beirut with Citicorp at the height of Lebanon's civil war in 1975. After relocating to New York, Chandrika got a job at McKinsey & Company, the prestigious global management consulting firm. She became the first foreign woman hired despite not having a degree from an American college and subsequently became one of the first females to be made partner. In 1992, she founded an advisory firm that bears her name. It was also during that time Chandrika became involved in various humanitarian projects, a passion that continues today. So, Chandrika, welcome, and thanks so much for joining me today. I'm so thrilled to be here, and I've got to say, Sandy, your range of brilliantly creative women that you interview is stunning. And you're part of that range. So let's start with your childhood in India. As I mentioned in the introduction, you were exposed to all different types of music because your parents were into all different types of music? Well, yes. My mother was is a musician. She's got a brilliant voice, and it's a fabulous singer. But in India, where we grew up in Chennai, there were just two radio stations. And one radio station basically played all genres of music, and it started at 5 a.m. and ended at 11.30 or 12. And so that radio was pretty much on the whole day. In your household. In our household. Mm-hmm. So music was just there, whether I wanted it or not. <laughs> and so, right. in fact, some of these melodies are sort of subliminally, they, they were, I had this osmosis process that uh-huh. was going on. And what was interesting was that while there was a lot of Indian classical music and Indian film music that was being played on on the radio, there used to be programs called Listener's Choice where we would hear R&B, we would hear pop, and we'd hear rock and classical and all of these pieces. So there was all these multi-genres of music that we were exposed to. And what was your mother's genre of music? My mother was a trained Carnatic South uh, Indian classical musician. And she was pro- a professional. She earned a living doing that? No, she didn't. But she was very talented and a very frustrated person that couldn't actually express her talent. Why? Because, you know, she came from a very traditional family, got married when because she Because she didn't was, do that, right? She didn't do that. And in fact, in the earlier traditions of India, being a professional singer or a dancer was really reserved for the court dancers and for the ah, court musicians. Mm-hmm. So pedigreed families didn't let their children go out and study dance and music. Would you call her a frustrated yes. music? I mean, that it was just very tough for her, right? It was very tough for her. And so, therefore, it transferred on a little bit to me. In terms of her encouragement and maybe wanting you to be able to do what she couldn't do? Or wanting me to be much better than 
I was, but it had the opposite oh. effect on me. Mm-hmm. So I ended up almost seeing how talented she was and how talented everybody around me was. And I stopped singing for many, many years. And is that how you wound up going into the business field? Which in a was, sense. Which in a way diametrically opposed to that, right? Which is, yes. But I also had the right and the left brain ah. working quite mm-hmm. actively. I was really good in my studies. Were you encouraged as a female? No. And I was clear that I was going to get married, or at least my family was clear that I was going to get married at 16 or 17. Which is what was done back Which was in what was done. Day. And in fact, I have vivid memories of my mother telling all my friends, oh, you know, uh, reserve your time because when she's 17, I'm going to find her a boy and she'll be married. And this was what the, the thesis was. In fact, my earliest memories are my mother buying, uh, you know, my trousseau, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. like silver vessels and, and so on. And she, because we came from a very simple family. Because very that's what you did. Yeah, that's what we did. And we came from a very simple family. Mm-hmm. And so that was needed. So that was what the ambition was, was enough education. You to get me out. To get me out. And enough talent so that you would be more well-rounded, you know, because in in the early days in India, people would come in and look at a girl and say, can she sing? Uh Can she dance? Can she cook? And yeah, I learned all of those. But to sing and dance was in terms of entertaining her husband? Not so much that, just that the the woman is talented. So there's a versatility. She's a complete package. And, And it sounds more critical, but it really wasn't. That was the way of the times. I understand. And that's what this is many, many years ago. Mm-hmm. And this is how we lived. This is what was expected. So when I fought the battle <laughs> to go to, not to college, but to go to a boys college in India, it was a hunger strike. How, how do you go to a boys college? Because I wanted to study business. Yeah, but how do you as a female go to a boys college? Because it was primarily a boys college, which my, where my father and grandfather went to, but which took in about 200 women in a college of several thousand. Gotcha. And so they had just opened it up to women, and that was the only college that offered uh, business studies for women. Did you see that on some level as your ticket, not ticket out so much, but your ticket to be able to determine your own destiny in a way? It's such a good question. It was my ticket to assert myself. I didn't have a long-term plan, but I knew I didn't want to be bound. And that was what my struggle was, being there. I always said, I want to be something more. My grandfather, who lived with us, who we lived in his house, really, would always say to me, believe in yourself. I read all the plays of Shakespeare when I was little. I read, you know, I could memorize. I had memorized so many poems, like long poems. You did this all on your own? With my grandfather. Uh Every night we would sit together and we would read Longfellow's a poem, Psalm of Life, an elegy written in a country churchyard, Thomas Gray. Mm-hmm. I mean, big poems, which I could start from verse one and go on. Tell me not in mournful dumbers, life is but an empty dream. <laughs> uh-huh. But that's what I did every night. And in this little small town, while I was living this very simple life, my vision was one that I could be what I wanted to be. Were you an anomaly? Yes, I would say so. What year are we talking about We're to give ta- us context? I was, I was born in 54. I'm now well, 63. <laughs> I hope so. I'm now 63. So mm-hmm. this, you know, I'm talking of the the 50s, mm-hmm. but I'm really talking of the 60s. So you were just kind of on the cusp of this, so to speak, yes. where women were kind of breaking through in a way. Women were breaking through in America. Women were not breaking through in India at that time. 
because the Indian tradition, and we were in a, and by the way, even if they had broken through in India, they wouldn't have broken through in Chennai because Chennai was such a small town. It's become much more of a knowledge capital, you know, 50, mm-hmm. 60 years later. At that time, you know, it was like a slightly, you know, it was a small town. How many siblings do you have? I have a sister and a brother. And were you all similar? In in terms of your drive and your interest and your passions? I would say my brother was much younger. So mm-hmm. by then, my sister and I had gone off to do a lot of other things. But my sister was very similar, but she's, she's a year younger than I am. Mm-hmm. But in a way, the fights and the battles were mine to be fought. You sort of paved the way. I paved the way. So I went on, a, on my hunger strike to go to college. And then she went there a year well, later. Well, you made it easier for her. With nary a protest from my family. You wanted to go to college, but your parents, obviously, as you said, had other plans for you, as in, here's our daughter, she's 17, and want to entertain a line of suitors. I should clarify, they were happy for me to go to college while they were looking for a boy for me. They wanted me to go to a girls' college Near the house. Local. Mm -hmm. Which is what they wanted. That's not what I wanted. I wanted to go a little further away to an all-male college. Meaning that you would sleep there. I wouldn't sleep there, but I would go for a an hour each way and come back, and it was all boys. In my class, there were just four girls, wow. and that was it. Was a hunger strike. My Irish nun from who was the headmistress of my school, <laughs> who I've never seen leave my convent school. I grew up, you know, my my education was in a convent school. I'd never seen the nun leave. She actually came to my house to talk to my family to say... To advocate on your behalf? Yes, you need to let her go because I cried so much and I threw such a tantrum. Now, were you raised Catholic? No, but the Catholic education was, was one a better of the edu- best education so you could she, get. So she rallied for you yes. and your parents heard her, obviously. Yes. And so maybe with some trepidation, more trepidation than blessings, perhaps, they sent you on your way. Well, and the nice thing is, this was the college my grandfather had gone to. Yes, right. My father had gone there. So there there. was street cred for this school. So ultimately, it was like, okay, you know, let's just get her out of our hair. And that's (laughs) pretty much what happened. Plus, you know, they, I, I was going there. I was paying. My grandfather was plotting with me to pay the fees on the site. So he, he in spite of your parents, was your biggest? Yes. Supporter, so to speak. Isn't that great? It's great. So you go to school and you spend... Three years. Three years. And you graduate. Now what? And again, it was a challenge. Uh, You know, it's back to this whole um, feeling that I had of not wanting to be bound. I'd done academically very well. You were number one in the class? I was number one in the class. Wow. So my professor had said to me, look, have you considered applying to business school? And it was the number one business school in India where only 116 students got in, but about 100,000 applied. This is what he had in mind for you. He had in mind, but I was quite young to go there because I I graduated at 18 from college. And then you go to business school straight away. So I graduated from business school at 20. And when I mentioned it to a few of my family, they said, oh, you're nuts. You're never going to get in because this is like getting a Nobel Prize. You know, they (laughs) mostly engineers go there, people with work experience. Chances are slim to none. None. Don't bother. And and I was very good at law, and law would have been what I was going to study. And I said, I'm going to try. Didn't said, they already get that that's your MO, that you're just not going to take no for an answer? But they really wanted me to get married. I understand. So yes. I was meeting boys. Boys were being trotted in front of me. Did they feel intimidated by you? I don't know. I haven't asked my mother this question. All I know is I kind of fought a lot. You tolerated it, sort of. You said that. And I was just, I, I just remember having a very conflicted 
time with my mother, mm-hmm. especially because she was my main caregiver, because I was violating all her expectations sure. and she was not letting me do what I wanted to, but both coming from a place of love. I understand. It wasn't that she was trying. Where'd your was, dad figure in any of this? My dad was traveling and he was more he, of a passive guy. At the end of the day, he would come around to whatever happened. Mm-hmm. So my grandfather was my ally and I would go and cry to my grandfather mm-hmm. and then we would take on. And my mother, in a sense, was the keeper of the tradition. And so that's what happened. And then I went to business school and I got in. Yeah, apparently. Uh-huh. And you won't believe, Sandy, I've got to tell you the story. This is where music and, and my business collide. Business collide. So I was at the interview of the business school, and, and it was a very complex process. You had to do a test, you had to do interviews, you had to do group interviews, and then a one-on-one interview with five professors or four professors of the school when you clear a few rounds. So I'm in the final round with four of the top professors of the business school. So they look at my bio and they say, oh, I see you've been singing in the radio. And I had I used to do a lot of performances in the radio when really? I was in college. Yeah, on the side. Because, uh-huh. you know, when there were the college performances, I'd always be asked to sing. And they said, oh, what kind of singing do you do? I said, oh, I've done French songs. I learned French through music at mm-hmm. that time. And I'd performed in the radio with a lot of French songs. It turns out that one of the four professors had spent his multiple years at the Sorbonne in Paris. And so he put both his arms up. He folded his arms and he said, okay, I'd like to hear a French song. I want to see how you sing. And he did it with attitude, right? Like With, with attitude, yeah. because mm-hmm. I was the last. And he said, you're the last interview of the day. Mm-hmm. And we'd like to know if this is for real. And I think he was probably thinking that God knows, you know, this girl from Chennai who's never been to France, who doesn't know anything about She's anything. delusional. And I did a perfect rendition of Les Feuilles Mortes, which is this... Sing a few bars. Oh, je voudrais tant que tu te souviennes Des jours heureux où nous étions amis And I sang the whole song because I had been trained by the, the head of at the Alliance Française because he liked my voice and he wanted to teach me to sing in good French. And I'm musical, so I could pick up the accent. So at the end of it, he said, you're coming to Ahmedabad. You're coming to the business school. So that's how I knew I'd got in. So this is my story of how music and my two worlds came together in a beautiful way. Isn't that amazing? That's wonderful. So how long was that education? How long did it? Two years. And now you're 20. 20. And then what happens to you? I decide I'm never going to be in banking because my father was in banking. I mm-hmm. thought it was the most boring area on the planet. After studying it? After studying mm-hmm. it. And I didn't want to be there. And then at the very last minute, they say, well, Citibank's interviewing. Out of the class of 116, I think 104 had applied for the Citibank job. Mm-hmm. So the head of placement says, don't you want to apply for this job? And this is the one in Beirut? The one in Beirut. That initial training was in Beirut. So I said, I'm not planning to go to banking. He says, no, you should just send it in. So I go there and they pick three of us and I'm one of the three that was picked for the Citibank job. So that's what happened. Next thing I know, I'm in Beirut. And there's a revolution going on. In the middle of the civil war. And, you know, I learned so much being there. It's my first trip abroad. It's my first trip out of... Never any, any place. doubt for you of any of the things that you did, or did you just always know that you were on the right path, so to speak? No, I didn't think of right or wrong, Sandy. This wasn't what my my thought process was. It just was. It just seemed like that's what I wanted to do. Once I got the Citibank job, it was so exciting because here I was, I was going to be with all these international people, and, and the people were wonderful. I liked the people that interviewed me. And how long did you stay in Lebanon? For four months. 
But we were the last plane actually to be uh, kicked <laughs> to out, out of Lebanon because they closed the country for years, for almost a year after that. In fact, the the scenes were so horrific. We would ride in the morning to our hotel, to the office, and whole buildings and whole streets would be burnt down yeah. when we were coming back. So oh, wow. our hotel, the Holiday Inn, was completely razed to the ground. We were staying in a hotel. We were part of the Citibank program, so Citibank was taking care of us. Uh-huh. I, it's a miracle now as I look back that we were actually there during such Yeah, tumult and crazy and turmoil, exactly. But we learned a lot. I mean, being there and walking around and and learning to embrace strife and yet finding a way to live there. And while you were in Lebanon, again, you could count on one hand how many women were with you? I don't think there were any. There were any. Wow. There could have been, but I don't. Definitely our group and ones that really were active. There was, And there, there were people from all over the world. All over the world, yeah. And so then why did you wind up here? How did you wind up I here? I know. And then I ended up with Citibank. Citibank posted me back in India. Uh-huh. And I was running a big operation in Citibank. India. And now you're getting to be an old maid. Is this bothering your mother? <laughs> <laughs> now you're it's, in your 20s. It's and- conflict. Beyond, without, and remember, every time I got letters, because this was predating the ages of email, email. so I'd get long episodes from my family telling me I'm I'm over the hump. Right, no one's going to want you. <laughs> but you just soldiered on. But then I started. I started working, and then I decided I was in India, and my mother would, uh, I was working in India, living in India for about two years. But not near home or no? Not near home. Okay. And then she would send me boys or introduce <laughs> me to people, and I would... I had my own life at that mm-hmm, moment, mm-hmm. which was very, very full and very liberating. I bet. Because it's the first time I really was living alone. And with my earnings, it was it was entirely, I was in, really independent. You were calling the shots. Yes. Or, or the mistress of your own fate, in a yes, sense. Yes, but I was still 21. Yeah. And 22. So this, yeah. was, uh, this was extreme youth. And at that moment in time, I was there for three years, and then I wanted more. And what I wanted was I wanted to study more. Mm-hmm. I really wanted to. And that's when I applied for a PhD. In? I wanted to do a PhD in business and music in the U.S. In the U.S. And so Citibank sent me to the U.S. for a project. I come up with some interesting idea there on on foreign exchange gains and losses. We'd created a brand new system, which they wanted to adopt worldwide. So they sent me to New York to work with Citibank in New York. And you came to New York City. I came to New York City. Alone. Alone. When you're in, you're 23. Three. Did you know what the hell hit you when you... Not even. And in fact, I remember I have this vision of walking in Park Avenue with this long kaftan, which is like a nightdress. People must have thought I was nuts. So I had to walk and figure myself out. When I came to New York for the first time, this was in early 78. And then I went and just walked into different schools. In fact, I called up NYU from the yellow pages or the white pages. Mm -hmm. And those were the days when you could actually look at the Mm -hmm. phone book. And I found a professor's name which said the Ross Institute of Accounting Research, Joshua Ronan. And I called him up and said, my name is Chandrika and I would like to apply for a PhD. And this is the middle of winter. So Where the hell did you live? The Citibank had me in a hotel. Okay, right. I so forgot I that had, they were sort of... They were, they were my sponsor. Right, right, allies. So mm-hmm. Joshua says, come on over now. So I go there. I don't have my GMAT scores. I don't have any of this. And I just talk to him like I'm talking to you. Half an hour later, Joshua Ronan says to me, I like you, and I'm going to take you in for the PhD program. He just interviews me, and he says, I'll take you in. Mm-hmm. So NYU gave me scholarship for a PhD. And then I had admissions into three or four other great 
universities. And you stay here. I didn't stay here for studying. And I went back to India, and then I came back. Again, Citibank sent me, and I met someone from McKinsey at that time. And this became a love affair because she, too, kind of took to me, and I took to her. What was supposed to be a half-an-hour getting-to-know conversation ended up being a four-hour love fest. And then I met, she said, you've got to meet other people at McKinsey. I know you want to go to business, you back to business school and do a PhD. You just have to talk to us. And then the next thing I knew, McKinsey gave me a job having interviewed with 16 people in, a, in yellow saris. And I don't think they'd ever even hired anybody who did own a single business suit. Wow. And that's what happened, Sandy. So I walked around and I was really impressed, you know. At the end of 16 interviews, not one person said to me, are you planning to change your clothes? They let you be you. They let me be me. And mm -hmm. I said, what an amazing place. Mm -hmm. And of course, it was the best of the best, you know, because the Harvard, the Baker Scholars from Harvard, McKinsey was much smaller then. Mm -hmm. This was the blue chip consulting gotcha. firm. Mm -hmm. And the fact that they took me in was such an honor, was such a... Well, but they also don't suffer fools gladly. You know, they're not going to take somebody in who's not going to make I the was, mark. The next few years, I started with McKinsey in Tokyo. Mm -hmm. So I started living there. For the next few years, I didn't see the light of day. I just worked hard. <laughs> uh, and you were all over? I was all over the world. I want to know how the business morphed into the music, which obviously you never gave up. What made you put business sort of on the back burner? The whole conflict and between business and music started pretty much when I was working in Citibank, McKinsey, all of these places. I had no time to sing, but I always wanted to sing. So I would come back from all my trips at Friday night at 1 o'clock in the morning. I would sing. I would put on music and sing. In fact, McKinsey gave me $5,000 when I joined them, and I've got to tell you the story. As a bonus to set up, you know, like a relocation bonus, because I had nothing. I didn't have an apartment. I needed to pay a security deposit. I needed all of that. My rent was like $600 for the apartment. So I paid the security deposit, and the remaining 4400 whatever it was, I bought a stereo system for about $2,000, and then I bought a Martin guitar for the rest of the money. So I had about $10 or $15 for food for the next <laughs> month. Right. So I lived in an apartment with a suitcase, and somebody lent me a pillow and a sheet, but I had a Martin guitar and the best stereo system and my vinyl collection of albums. Isn't that crazy? And that was my apartment for almost two months until I got my next two or three salary checks. And I slowly added a, a used chair and stuff. Mm -hmm. But that's how I lived. And but so you're in your apartment singing? Singing, listening to music. I had all my Beatles White album. I had my, my, all my Beatles, my, my French music, uh -huh. all of that. So music and I were together, but in a different way. And when I would travel, like I was were doing work in Brazil, I was doing work in Europe, I was living with McKinsey in Amsterdam, wherever I was, I would break off and go hit the piano bars or the, the singing places or buy tickets to every concert. I wouldn't be singing. I would be listening to so much music. Mm -hmm. There wasn't much opportunity to sing in, in this very high-end business right. world I was in. Sure. And this carried on and carried on. And then I formed my own company and I did the same thing again and again. I just continued working. So my 20s, my 30s, really even my 40s, Sandy, 30 years were, I'm going to put this in a positive way. It was it was a somewhat lost existence for me on one level. I understand. On the other level, I loved the business world. It mm -hmm. wasn't that I didn't Well, like it also it. loved you. I love working with clients. Mm -hmm. I love having impact in their businesses. And I like thinking about abstract problems and making 
mm-hmm. a change. Mm-hmm. And so about 20, about 17 years ago, I had a sort of an, an, I would say, a meltdown almost, where I had to really think about what happens. What if I die today? Is this it? Is Am this I just it? going to be working? I'm going to cry, but what satisfies me? What makes my soul happy? What is happiness? And then I started to look and every important moment of my life was around music. Every time when I felt like this intense sense of joy, when I forgot the world was around music. So I said, you know, it doesn't matter what else I do in the rest of my life. I have to make time for music. This was what happened. It was a reclaiming of myself. I said, if I died tomorrow and I never sang and never did intense singing, I would have really shortchanged myself. It became a strident cry. It became what was a yearning became a became something I couldn't escape from. I mean, to to put it in perspective, I cried. I'm a person who doesn't cry for almost anything. I cried for three straight days. As to what to do, but I or that I had to do something right. to change. So did you leave the business so world? I didn't leave the business world, but I decided not to have this crazy schedule. Right. I put boundaries. I cut out traveling as much as I did. I was, I mean, I was commuting to Brisbane. No, which idiot does that? Yeah, what idiot does do that? <laughs> oh, gosh. And uh-huh. it's a 32-hour commute, and I was doing this every 10 days. Oh, good Lord. So that's how crazy my life was. And I decided I'm not going to do that. So mm-hmm. I put boundaries. And that did change my business life because I was, my business involved a lot of travel. And then I said, I'm going to learn music. I then started begging teachers to take me on because I wanted to learn Indian music in the highest traditions. And by then, I was all already in my 40s. And nobody wanted to take me on because the teachers start with people when they're six. Sure, this is a waste to them. And mm-hmm. to them, it's a waste. Mm-hmm. And so it was, I had a very tough time to find music. To but find you found teachers. it. And then I did. So I would go to India for 10 days, leave my whole life and go and sit and work for 10 hours a day. To sing and to, to learn. To sing and to learn. And so you learn to sing. And then the instruments accompanied me, but I'm primarily a singer. You're primarily a singer, but I, as I said in the introduction, you're also a multi-instrumentalist. So you play. As I said, I have my Martin guitar. Mm-hmm. I play guitar. I play say, a vena when the Indian instruments. And I also play, you know, of course, I when I compose, I work with a keyboard. But I'm not really, I haven't really learned to read music. It all comes Naturally, almost. So you were able to transition. I mean, I'm not saying that it happened in 10 minutes, but you were able to transition from this really intense world to this very, very creative and almost, in a way, solitary world? Yes, a solitary world and a world which I was moving to, which was so different. My whole sense of identity was challenged. Because I was always known as an important business person. Sure. And suddenly, I was nothing. Well, you were reinventing yourself for other people, even though you knew this was in your soul. Right. And inside of you. So now this is what you do for a living. That's what I spend a lot of my time on. It's not what I do for a living, but this is what I spend a good amount of my time on. And you go on tour? I go on tour, and but all the proceeds of what I do go back to charity, 100% of it. It's not the way I make money. Was it difficult to get yourself out there and to be taken seriously? Yes. But this is a critical learning that I've had, which is you have to get out of the way 
to be able to express yourself. You mean you have to get out of your own way? Your own way. You have to get out of the way. Your ego, your your insecurities. You have to take your clothes off. You have to. And especially for me, I was already known. I wasn't a 15-year-old coming sure, in and sure. bursting in with the first song. But here I was. People knew me and it's like, who? You, you just are releasing an album. I didn't even think I was releasing music commercially. I didn't start out to do music commercially. You just had to do it for you, didn't you? I did you? it for me. And I did it because I wanted to share it. The first album I did was an album I made for my 90-year-old father-in-law. And I just made it because this is a chant he wanted, and I did it for him. And then it got picked up commercially, and it was a, I had a cult following. Were you a hit in India? I have a cult following of a whole group of people who, wherever I go in particular settings, people will come and talk to me about the fact that they listen to my album every single day, several times a day. And it doesn't matter where they're from. It doesn't matter where they're from. And they will tell me that this album got them through a death of a loved one or a particular healing thing that happened with them. I had thousands of emails on that, like 1,600 emails. So there's an inspiration and there's a connection and a simpatico that seems to happen. Or some energy transmission that seems to happen that people kind of react to the music in themselves. It's not what I'm doing. It's what they're doing to themselves. You're the catalyst in a way. I'm the catalyst. And I feel very privileged to be able to be that. And you have a band? I work with a lot of amazing musicians. In studio, in this new album, which we've just released, we have a... And that's one called Quest, correct? Shivoham, The Quest. Uh Uh-huh. And we've worked with 279 musicians and some extraordinary names. Mm -hmm. Kenny Warner, the jazz pianist. Sure. Romero Lubambo, the guitarist. We worked with the London Voices, which is a huge choir. We worked with the London Metropolitan Orchestra. Is this who you are today, aside from your humanitarian endeavors and your entrepreneurship? Business has been, as they say, very, very good to me, but it's certainly on the back burner. It's, it's a complicated issue, Sandy. and Very interwoven? We're very interwoven because I have a very strong role in the, in the business world. Still. I do that, and I'm, as you know, I'm on several boards, and I play, um, I'm not a, a board member that just sort of shows up. I'm very active. Committed. I'm very committed because I don't think I want to do anything in my life where I can't look back and say to myself, I really made a difference. What are some of the causes that are so important to you? The arts are very important to me. Education is very important to me. So that's why I, I serve in very, very many parts of New York University mm-hmm. you know, with the board, with the engineering school, which I chair the board. I'm involved in the medical school. I'm involved mm-hmm. in the business school. And Lincoln Center, which I'm involved with on all of the elements of Lincoln Center and, you know, the arts world and the Berkeley School of Music, the Berkeley College of Music. In I'm interested in bringing in mm-hmm. Massachusetts. I'm on the President's Council. I'm involved with Yale as a, and the Global Council. So the global issues of arts and education. So this is a full-time job. Do you ever do nothing? Not really. This is all nothing in a way. <laughs> I don't think so. Sandy, you know why? When you are really guided in a way and you love what you do, it's it bigger doesn't than you. feel like work. It's a calling. It's in a, a way. calling. And and every day, no one's asking me to do anything. It's not like I have a deadline. Of course, sometimes I have a deadline when I've set up something, mm-hmm. but it's all by choice. Given that, it's a joy. It's an absolute privilege. I wake up in the morning and I pray and I say, Thank you, the universe, for making this happen. 
I don't take that away from you, but there's also that proactivity on your part. You're not just sitting back waiting for the heavens to open up and manna to fall down. I'm working very, very, yeah, no very kidding. hard. No kidding. I'm working hard. And there's also talent here. You know, no one's going to buy your album just because you, you know, you sit on a board. There has to be talent. I hope so. Come on. You have to acknowledge I, I, that. But I've had a lot of experience. You know, now I'm 63 mm -hmm. and I've been in this business world a long time. And it's a terrific opportunity. And I've worked with 67 uh, CEOs and boards over the last Yes. Do they buy your albums? <laughs> I don't know. It's a good question. I should. You should find That's that a huge out. Huge marketing opportunity. <laughs> so, do you go back and forth to India? You still have family there, or not so much anymore? Not as much anymore. Mm -hmm. I still go there. But and was your husband always supportive of these endeavors? Yes, I think he doesn't completely understand what I'm doing, mm -hmm. but I think he is just happy to have me be happy. Well, you know what's really interesting as we were talking about your mother making sure that you were going to get married. I don't want to put that off to the side, but you did get married, but you did that on your own, correct? Yes. It was a blind date. We met and we we got married in New York, 86. So your mother must have been very happy. She was very happy because at that moment in time, they, they were all convinced I was an old maid. An old maid. <laughs> I don't know what to say, Shantrika. This has been, it was one of the fastest conversations I've ever had. You just make it seem so natural and so easy. But I think that what's really important here is how inspirational you've got to be to younger women. You know that maybe you didn't set out to do this in a specific way, but you had the strong sense of self and you knew what you had to do for you and whatever mountain you had to climb, you climbed. You know, the one thing I want to say, Sandy and... And I said this to all the students because at our NYU Tandon School of Engineering this year, we have an entering class of 41% women in an engineering school. You go, Shandri. So, so proud <laughs> yeah, hello, hello. And by the way, creativity and all of these aren't just restricted to music in mm -hmm. every space. Because I understand. engineering is really about coming up with creative solutions in the service of society. Yes, and it's also been about men. And I really think about this. To me, my crusade, if you like, if I look at my mission in one way, is that I would like not just myself, but the world and the women in particular to understand and to almost work with three Cs, if you like, that they're able to work with their own sense of confidence, with their own sense of courage and their own sense of compassion. And all the confidence is what the belief does. Because if you don't believe in yourself, why should anyone anybody else, else believe You're absolutely in you? right. You're absolutely How right. How can you stand there with a straight face and with a convincing face and do that? And similarly, that confidence gives us the courage to take steps. And it doesn't matter. The universe is so kind and so loving and will create a plan for you. And the synchronicities are stunning. And ultimately, this compassion is kind of a misunderstood or a under-understood point mm -hmm. because I think you have to have compassion for yourself. Women, all of us are so hard on ourselves. Yeah, I, I think this whole notion of perfectionism is completely overrated. I think I'm perfect as I am. I think you're perfect as you are. We, I've spent a lifetime trying to be perfect and trying to get somewhere, but I am perfect where I am. And once I embrace that, my whole prism with which I look at myself and others has changed. Wow. And I would say if I could say one thing to myself, to you, to anyone else, those would be some of the themes that I carry with me. And that changes the way you are. And it doesn't matter. The ups and downs are going to keep coming. Mm -hmm. I mean, goodness me, uh, we've all had ups and downs. I can count today the three things that have gone right or wrong. It depends on how one looks at it.
What a great way to end. We're going to end this conversation with a sample of your work called Beginnings. But how do people get to find you? It's on Amazon. It's on iTunes. I'm on Facebook. Please join my quest, which is my quest. It's your quest. It's our quest. We're all on this journey together. And now we're going to hear a sample from The Quest. Shandrika Tandon, I can't thank you enough for having a conversation with me. It was really inspirational and totally my pleasure to get to meet you. You're terrific. Thank you so much. Join us for another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. Vakratunda Mahakaya 